Who are you going to call? Hang on. I knew you'd go there, Daniel. Hang on. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. When your car breaks down on the side of the road, who are you going to call? In area May? Mechanic? Yep. When the water backs up in your toilet and your shower, who are you going to call? Husband? Owner of the house? A plumber? Daniel? When you're in over your head financially and you're going under with bills, who are you going to call? God? Maybe a financial planner? Somebody that can help you manage the finances that you have in a, a better way? When you wake up with a sore throat and a runny nose, who are you going to call? Not honey. Who are the rest of you going to call? A chemist, a doctor. We're going to go to a medical expert, a medical profession to try to help us with our runny nose. Okay, Daniel. And when there's something strange in your neighbourhood, who are you going to call? Okay, that was for you, Daniel. I knew you'd throw that one out, the old Ghostbusters. And when you wake up in the morning and you realise that your dog's got no legs, who are you going to call? <laughs> Don't call the dog, it won't matter, he can't come to you anyway. <laughs> that one was for me, I thought I'd throw that one in for me. Bad joke. If you've got a Bible there, go to Judges chapter 6 for me. I want to talk a little bit this morning about Gideon. And we all know the story of Gideon, it's a great story. As a matter of fact, it's one of my favourite stories in the Bible and it's one of those stories that I think you could probably preach on for a whole year. There are so many things in that story and so many different angles and perspectives you could come from that you could spend a year, or I know I could, I could spend a year preaching from the book of Gideon. But I just want to look at one particular thing and try to draw a couple of points out of this story this morning. Judges chapter 6. If you, you read verse 1 through to verse 10, Israel have got themselves into a pickle. Israel are in a pickle. They're in a difficult spot. The book of Judges is cyclic. You know how your washing machine has a cycle? It goes from this to that to this to that, back to this to that. It's a consistent cycle. The book of Judges is a cyclic book. It has a cycle to it. And the cycle is this. Israel loved God. God blesses Israel. Israel beat everybody. Israel turned their back on God. So God takes his hand off Israel everybody beats Israel. Israel cry out to God. God comes back and blesses Israel. Israel beat everybody else. Israel turn their back on God. God takes his hand off Israel. Everybody else beats Israel. Israel cry out for God's help. God comes back and blesses Israel. Israel beats everybody else. And you know what I'm going to say next? The cycle. It goes on and on and on. The book of Judges is a cycle of Israel following God being blessed, turning their back on God, having his hand being removed, and then being oppressed by another nation. Eventually, somebody wakes up to themselves and goes, let's cry out to God again. They do. He blesses them and so on. That's the cycle of the book of Judges. And so when Gideon comes on the scene, Israel are in one of the down cycles. They're down here. They've turned their back on God. Usually, they would associate with another nation. They would worship the gods of the other nation. And that would, would be enough for God to go, well, if you want to worship their gods, I'll let their gods take care of you. And their gods didn't because their gods weren't real gods like the one true God. And so by the time Gideon comes along, Israel's in the bottom of the cycle. They've turned their back on God. And so God's given them over to whatever they want. And Israel's in a rough patch. And the Midianites and other nations around them were coming into their farmlands and they were raiding their farmlands. 
and they were taking their wheat and they were taking their crops and Israel were in hiding. If they did have uh, a crop or something, they were trying to hide it. But the Midianite raiders, would they'd sniff it out and they'd come down the hills and they would raid and take it. And Israel were in a really, really bad way. And by the time we get to Judges chapter 6, the sad part of the story is we're about to read a story of great victory, but you move on a couple of chapters and Israel are right back where they started from. Some people never learn. Anyone know people like that? Anyone like that? I am. God, help me. God says, well, do things my way. Okay, I'll do it your way, Lord. And he puts his hand upon me and he blesses me and I think I'm something special. And then I feel like, well, I don't need you now. God, I know how this works. And God goes, no, hang on. You don't know how it works because it works because I'm involved. That's why it works. And so I run off and do my own thing. And before you know it, I'm in trouble again. And I turn around and go, God, I'm in trouble. Help me. He goes, I'll come and help you. I go, yes, look how great I am. I've won again, you know. We can all be like that. So in Judges chapter 6, after Israel are in a spot of bother, the Bible says this, if we start in verse 11, it says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, not Oprah, Winfrey, Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the wine press. I love that, because it sounds like when I read that, that Joash must be sitting on the lounge with a drink in his hand, and his son's doing the work. Anyone have that experience? I would love that. I pray for that every day. I want to be this guy because Gideon's out there doing the work while Dad's chilling out under a tree. It says, While his son Gideon threshed in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. Now, let me give you a little bit of understanding. A wine press is a hole in the ground. A wine press is a hole in the ground where they would put the grapes and you, you tread them down and so on. It, it's a hole in the ground. That's the most important part here. It's a hole in the ground. When you thresh wheat, you get up on a pile with a, with a, 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 what do they call them, a rake type thing, and they would dig it in and they would throw it in the air and the good wheat would fall to the ground and the rubbish would blow away. And that's how they would thresh wheat out in the open with the breeze blowing. So here we go because of fear. They can't be out in the open because the Midianites will come down and they'll take it. So here he is in a wine press trying to thresh wheat in the wine press. This is not a good look. It's not a good situation. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about? Saying, Did did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours. And you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? It's amazing how many times in the Bible we have that word go and being sent. It's amazing. Even here in the Old Testament. So he said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the least in my father's house. In other words, I'm I'm the least of the least of the least. I'm the weakest of the weakest of the weak. And the Lord said to him, Surely I'll be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Two things strike me about this call of Gideon. It's an amazing moment. Think about it. He's in a wine press. He's not feeling like anything great. He's maybe in fear of what's going on around him and what's happening to his nation. And this angel appears to him. And the two things that strike me, the first one is this. The angel appears before him, and the first thing Gideon does is has a whinge. He has a whinge. Look at it. An angel appears before him 
And he starts whinging to the angel. Oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles? An angel appears to him, says, the Lord's with you, and he starts whinging. Where are all, you know? Does that not make sense? What would you do if an angel appeared to you right now? In my wildest dreams, when I envision an angel appearing to me, I don't think the first thing I'm going to do is have a good old-fashioned whinge to you. First thing I'm going to do is tell you all the things that, God, you are not doing, you know? I, I don't get it. But the first thing you do, maybe he was an Aussie. Maybe Gideon was an Aussie. And he's just going to complain about anything. Okay, there's an angel. Yeah, great. It's, it's great you're there, but let me tell you a few things, all right? Um, so Gideon complains and he whinges to this angel. Reminds me of a joke I heard years ago about a guy that booked himself into a monastery uh, for a silence retreat. He booked himself in and the rules were only allowed to have two words a year. And every year, once a year, they would go and meet with the guy that ran the monastery and they would be able to share their two words with him. And so after one year, this guy was called into the office. He sat down and the guy said to him, is there anything you'd like to say? And he said, bed hard. The guy noted down, said, right here, back to your thing. I'll see you in 12 months. Guy went back to his monastery duties, couldn't say a word, all silence. 12 months later, he comes back, he sits in the office again. The guy running the monastery says, right, anything you'd like to say, what are your two words? He said, shower cold. He said, right, yeah, no worries, go. I'll see you in 12 months' time. The guy went back. 12 months' time, he comes back, he's sitting opposite the desk of the same gentleman that runs the monastery. He says to him, you got anything else you'd like to say this year? What would you like to say? He says, I quit. And the guy behind the desk goes, well, it's about time. You've done nothing but whinge since you got here. It's a little bit like that. He's whinging when this angel appears. The second thing that strikes me about this is this angel appears and the angel says to him, you mighty man of valour. Now here's Gideon in a wine press, hiding out, keeping the crops from the Midianites, probably too scared to do it out in the open, and this angel appears and sees this scenario and says, you mighty man of valour. How many of you know that God sees us different than what we see ourselves? God looks at you today... And I'll guarantee if you could hear him speak to you, you would probably think he's talking about a different person. You would probably think that he's speaking about the person sitting next to you. Or, or talking about uh, somebody, you know, a great man or woman of faith that you, you... You probably, most of us, if he called out and said this person, we'd probably keep walking and not even realise that he was talking to us. This angel appears and looks at Gideon and says, You mighty man of valour. First thing. That he says to him, he declares to him, you're a mighty man of valour. In the New Living Translation, I like the way it puts it, the angel appears to him and the angel says to him, you mighty hero. You mighty hero. What has Gideon done up to this point? Gideon hasn't done anything yet. We know what he's going to do. He'll go on and lead a nation and he'll win some battles and go down as as, as a great judge. But at this point, Gideon's done nothing. But yet this angel appears, looks at him and says to him, you mighty Hero, you mighty man of valour. See, I think God looks at us a little bit of an end product. I think when God looks at us, he doesn't just look at us the way we do. He looks at us and he sees the potential that's inside of us. He sees the destiny that's upon us. He sees the call of God upon us. He sees where we're going to be, who we're going to be, and he speaks that over us daily. He gives us his word. And he speaks over us that person that he sees us to be. Not just the person we see or the person we think we are, but the person that he sees us to be. The angel (coughs) says to him, you're a mighty man of valour. One of my favourite songs from many years back, uh, probably back in the 1980s, was a song by a band called the Foo Fighters. Uh, And they had a song called Hero. Anyone know that song? 
And it goes like this. It goes, there goes my hero. Watch him as he goes. You can sing it for us. So the chorus goes, there goes my hero. Watch him as he goes. There goes my hero. He's ordinary. He's ordinary. He's ordinary. I love that whole picture that the heroes of this world are ordinary people. The heroes of this world are average, everyday people, just like you and just like me. When we think of heroes, when we think about church history, when we think about the great men and women of God who have done amazing things for the Lord, and we think hero, we think hero status. The Bible in Hebrews talks about all these heroes of the faith. Yet when you go back and you read the lives of these people, they were ordinary, average, everyday people just like you and me. They made mistakes. They didn't have it all together. They didn't know everything. But they're heroes in the eyes of God. They're people that did great things in their nations. That did great things in their communities. That did great things in their workplaces. That did great things in the sporting clubs they're involved in. Did great things in their streets. They did things that had kingdom impact and changed the world. And now we look at them as heroes because of what they did. But when you read the story of men of them, they were just ordinary, simple people like you. I don't know about you. I don't know what that does to you. But even now talking about that to you, I'm getting excited inside because I think, you know what? I'm ordinary too. I'm ordinary as well. That means if I'm ordinary, I'm probably destined for greatness. If I'm ordinary, I'm probably the kind of thing God's looking for to put his hand upon, to put his spirit in, to put a vision in, and to launch me out to do something. Because God works through ordinary people like you and me. See, when we want to get a job done, who are we going to call? We're going to call the qualified. We're going to call the professionals. We're going to call the people that we know can do this because they've got the education, the training, whatever. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. If you're called of God, and the Bible says that we are all called of God, read Romans, we're all called of God, then he has qualified us for the work that he has for us to do. He's qualified you to do great things for the kingdom of God. The problem is not that God doesn't see that. The problem is we don't see that. The problem is not that God is not willing to flow through us like a wave and do something great with us, no matter what we have or don't have. The problem is we don't believe it. We don't believe it. So we don't put ourselves in positions of possibility. We stand in a place of impossibility because we look at ourselves and we go, well, I don't have what it takes. Well, what does it take to change the world? What does it take to be used by God? I read the Bible and I don't see a great list of competent people. I see a great list of people that messed up, made mistakes, didn't have it all together, but they had a heart for God. They had character that was directed towards God. And when God finds a person like that, there's no end to what he can do through a person whose heart is directed towards him. It's not about our competence, not about what we can do, because at the end of the day, it's not us doing it. God's the one that wants to work through us. God's the one that wants to bring his energy, bring his life, bring his spirit, bring his resources to the table. He just needs us as willing vessels to take that and to use that 
and to put that out there. See, God sees us differently from what we see ourselves. And this was a problem for Gideon. Gideon struggled to come to grips with the fact that God looked at him and said, you mighty man of valor. Look at what he did. The first thing he did, he wins and he complains straight away. It's, like, it's almost like it went over his head. You ever meet people like that? You can compliment something great about them and it just goes over their head. It just goes, whoosh. Maybe they don't, they don't know how to take, receive a compliment. There's a bit of an art to that without it going to your head and get proud and arrogant. Yeah, maybe they just literally can't hear that because of the way life has been and that's not me and I'm not going to have that and I'm this person over here and so on. God sees us different. In verse 15, Gideon says this. He says, pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. Is God looking at him going, you are a hero. You are a mighty man of valor. And he's looking at himself going, I'm the least of the least of the least. I'm the least of the least of the least. Tilt, tilt. Angel, are you looking at the same person I'm looking at? You know? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? I've got a theory. I reckon God was seeing him better than he was seeing himself. And I reckon if you're going to take your opinion and God's opinion, and they're polar opposites, whose opinion do you think is right every time? I think it's going to be God's opinion that's right every time. Gideon struggled. To come to grips with the fact that God saw him different than the way he saw Maybe he was in there threshing wheat. Maybe he was down on himself. Yeah, maybe he was kicking himself going, why, why am I doing this? Why aren't I gutsy enough to, you know, why do I let the raiders come down the hills and steal my crops? Why am I not out there leading a charge and gathering men? Why aren't I? He's looking at himself from a certain angle and the vision he had of himself was totally wrong. And for many of us sitting in the church, we have a completely wrong vision of ourselves. You see, the problem is not how God sees us. I believe God looks down upon his church. And if we could see through the eyes of God, we would see mighty warriors. We would see shields of faith. We would see helmets of salvation. We would see swords. We would see all kinds of stuff. We would be frightening. In the spiritual dimension, I think when the horns of a hill look down upon the church of God, they're probably frightened. But the problem is many are probably just standing still not doing anything. We're not moving forward. We're not daring to believe. We're not stepping out in faith. We're not opening ourselves up to the impossibilities of God, to the possibilities of God. We're stunting ourselves, stunting the growth of ourselves and perhaps the growth of the kingdom of God as well. Gideon tried to tell God that he had the wrong man. You got the wrong man. I'm not a mighty man of valor. I'm just... This dude down here who's the least of the least of the least, just threshing wheat, can't you see? I mean, surely there's somebody down the road that's more qualified, somebody down the road that's more courageous, somebody down the world, down the road there that is better. You know, if we go back and we look at church history, even the Bible, the Bible is littered with people, men and women, who did great things for God, who you and I, if we were to go and interview someone for those jobs, we wouldn't give it to them. We would not give it to them. Um, Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. Uh, Peter and John have been preaching the gospel. And they get dragged into the Pharisees. And when they're dragged in there and they're being questioned. Can we get that verse up there, Luke? Acts 4.13. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. Peter and John were not trained. They were not theologians. They were not guys that should have been doing what they were doing. They should not have been seeing the dead raised and the sick healed. They should not have been preaching the gospel and seeing literally thousands of people understand the message because it was so clearly presented. 
and coming to faith and following him. This shouldn't be happening to these guys. And so the religious leaders pulled them in and here's what they said. They saw the boldness of Peter and John. Watch what they perceived. They saw them. This is how the leaders saw them. They saw them as uneducated, untrained men. In the Greek, those two words are are agramatos idiotis. What do you think it means? Literally means illiterate, unlearned, unlettered idiots. That's literally what it means in the Greek. They were unlearned, illiterate idiots. This is how these guys saw them, as illiterate idiots. But it doesn't really matter how other people see you. It's how God sees you that will shape your destiny. If you actually line yourself up with God and start believing the things that God says about you, Start listening to the voice of God. It's not a flattering testimony for a bunch of blokes that started the church as we know it. Illiterate idiots. But yet these are the kinds of people that God seems to use. You know? Hands up if you think you may be a step ahead of them. Maybe a step. I, well, I can read. You know? I'm not illiterate. I'll put my hand up for that. But these are the kinds of people that God uses. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 29. See if Luke can beat me on the computer. Not yet. Oh, he got me. Verse 26 to 29. For you see your calling, brothers. In other words, you're all called, but you see your calling. Not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise God has chosen the weak. See, God chooses the weak. He chooses the foolish. He basically chooses all the things and people that you and me wouldn't choose in our wildest dreams. We wouldn't choose them because we live in a world of qualifications and education. We wouldn't pick these people, but God's picking these kinds of people. He chose the foolish things of the world to put to shame the world. He chose the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. Verse 28. And the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So God chooses things that are not qualified, that can't do it, so he can do it through them. So at the end of the day, everybody goes, praise God, this couldn't have happened without you. It's not about me building a kingdom, me being glorified. I'll tell you what, these Mother Teresa never set out to be a hero. She never set out to be a hero. She set out, I was reading the story the other day, she had something like three pennies to her name when she approached the head of the, the movement, the nunnery thing she was involved in. She approached them with three pennies and said, I've got a vision to feed the poor in Calcutta with three pennies. I don't think that woman looked at her and said, wow, you're a hero. Look, I think in that time they released her to do it, but I, I don't think anybody could have imagined what could have come from an old, a little old lady, German lady, with three, Austrian lady with three pennies. But that's how it started. And now the Sisters of Charity all around the world, they've got like tens of thousands of people working amongst the poorest of the poor because a woman with three pennies said, hey, God, I'm probably not the most qualified, but I'm here and can you use me? And she went and she stepped down in faith and she did something. God chooses those kinds of people. When I go through that list there, you know what, what, what stands out? I'm hearing more about what he does not choose. God chooses not a lot of knots. There's a lot of knots in there. Not this, not that, not that, not this. We've got ignorant idiots being picked. And then we've got a whole bunch of not powerful, not great, not strong, not all these things. Man, the more I look at that, if there was a job going and they were the job description, I'd put my hand up. I'd apply for it. 
And I reckon I'd be a good chance at getting it. I'd be a great chance at getting it. Except for I'm not illiterate, I can read. Idiot bit, I might fulfil a few requirements there probably. Not powerful, yep. Despised at times, yep. I probably fit that description pretty well. First Timothy 1, verse 15 to 16. Here's Paul the Apostle explaining to Timothy why God chose him. Now, wouldn't you think God chose him because he was a theological giant, because he was so great, at what he, he knew all the Bible? Wouldn't you think that's why God would choose him? Yet here's what Paul writes. Paul says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy. And now he's going to explain the reason. He says, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. In other words, you know why Jesus chose me, Timothy? He chose me because he's going to have to have a lot of patience to work with me to get me to be useful. And down the track, other believers down in, in the future will look at me and go, well, if he could do that for Paul, he can do that for me. Amen? If he can use Paul, then he can use... It wasn't because, you know, I'm going to tell you right now why he chose me, because I am so theologically brainy, it is not funny. Find me a Pharisee that's smarter than me. He won't. Snap, got that one covered. No. It didn't matter about that stuff. He said, God is going to have to chip away and be very patient and long-suffering with me. That's why he chose me, because I was hard work. And if he could work with me, then there's, that opens the floodgates for the rest of you to think, well, you know, maybe, maybe God can do something great in my life and through my life as well. Maybe God can do something like that. You know, at the end of the day, I love what INC's little slogan is, born for more. I've been thinking about that phrase this week, thinking, you know what, God, it's not just... Oh, I don't, I don't know that the wording is in the Bible, born for more. can't find scripture verse. I feel like it sums up. It sums up the gospel story for me. It sums up the fact that we have a creator God that we are born to have relationship with, that we are born to walk alongside, that we are born to work with, that we are born to glorify on this earth. And it's stripped away from us. It's been taken through the fall of Adam and Eve. But we're born for more. We're born for that. We are the people that carry the very presence of the living God. We are born to see healings happening when we pray for people. We are born to confront demonic forces and go, get out of here, you've got no right. We are born to call those things that are not as though they were. We are born to live by faith and not by sight. We are born for more than what this natural world points out to us. And I think somewhere in the psyche of us, particularly in Western Christianity, we have to start to believe that. You see, Gideon could not be used by God until he came into alignment with what God was saying, until he realised... Okay, what you're saying, God, is more real than what I'm saying about me. And it's a battle, and it's not easy. In closing, I want you to notice the angel's response when Gideon delivers his list of reasons why he had the wrong person. 
The angel didn't deny how Gideon felt. Yep, you feel a certain way about yourself because of past experiences or what you've been told or whatever. The, the angel did not deny how Gideon felt or tell him he can't feel that way. He didn't reject what Gideon had to say. What he did was he redirected where Gideon was looking. Gideon's looking at himself going, I'm the least of the least. I'm a nobody. I'm not, I, I've never been to Bible college. I'm not real smart. I'm not courageous. When I go into a conversation, I'm too scared to talk. I'm, I've got all these things against me. I'm not the charismatic person. I'm not the biggest personality in the room. I don't have a lot of skills. I don't have a lot of money. I don't... I've got this problem. I've got that problem. And the angel of the Lord comes along. And he says to him, in verse 16, The Lord said to him, Surely I'll be with you. After Gideon's poured out all these things, the angel of the Lord doesn't try to pick away at each of those issues and go, Well, no, that's wrong. That no. He said, Look, you know what? Life is going to happen and things are going to be there. But what I want you to do is redirect your focus. Stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at yourself. Start looking at the fact that, hey, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. As broken as what you are, God is with you. Right now. As messed up as you feel you are, God is with you right now. As, as, as hopeless as you feel right now, God is with you right now. Think about that. You and God are a majority. I don't care what mathematician you're talking to. You and God are a majority in any situation, in any circumstance. We've got to believe that. We've got to live like that. We've got to be bold enough to walk in that. Accept that. Ephesians 3.20 says this. It says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. He can do way more than what we think he can. He he, he can go way beyond the things we even ask him. That's a big God. And that God wants to do things. He wants to do things in the world. He wants to do things in the community. He wants to do things. But he's looking for people who will let him do stuff through them. But we limit God's ability to move through us when we fix our eyes totally on ourselves. Because we all know our own shortcomings and failings. But I want to tell you today, the way you see yourself is not the way God sees you. You want to know how God sees you? Get into the Bible. Get into the Word of God and have a look. Because if we could catch a glimpse and, and line our belief up with what God says about us, man, that would make us a powerful bunch of people, I'll tell you. That would make us a powerful bunch of people. God is able to do it, but will we let him do it through us? Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that each of us in this room, God, that, Father, we wouldn't allow ourselves just to settle. God, there are so many things that you want to do. God, I believe in this room there are, there are songs in people's hearts that need to be written. God, there are books and stories that need to be told. Father, there are businesses that need to get up off the ground. Father, there are orphanages that need to be built. There are schools that need to be started. There are kitchens waiting to be 
put together and funded. Lord, there are opportunities to bring the kingdom into the realm of science and the arts, education, politics. God, you're wanting to do all these things. And we limit ourselves and we limit you by not allowing you to tell us how you see us and by not embracing that, not believing that. Lord, I pray for each of us here, God. Give us a clearer vision of who we are as individuals, Lord. God, let us see how you see us. And give us the faith to embrace that and to believe that. And not to live life like everything is impossible, but begin to change the way we see the world around us. And start to be possibility-type people. To get out of that wine press and get back up on the hill and look around and go, you know what, with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. God, I pray as the next week unfolds, Father, watch over each of us here. And God, I pray for each of us that we would have an opportunity this week to share the reality and the love of Jesus with somebody who doesn't yet know it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. God bless, guys. If your water backs up, please don't call me. If your plumbing's not working, don't call me. If your car breaks down, don't call me. <laughs> but if there's something strange in your neighbourhood, Dan, who are they going to call? That's right, amen.